0: Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake-up tradition for the last 30 years. It's Rosie on the House. Good morning, y'all.
1: This is where you start your weekend. This is where we melt away your anxieties from the whole week. Sit back, pour yourself a cup of coffee, shake out the bedhead, and come on in to my house. In the 7 o'clock hour, we've got a very special guest that I'll get to in just a minute. 8 o'clock hour. We've got John Eisenhower coming in talking about trees. We're gonna arm wrestle as to whether it's pomegranate or pomegranate trees. At 9 o'clock, it's open hour where any project you've got you're trying to get done in, about, and around your house, home, castle, or cabin, you give us a call and let us put our 45 years of remodeling experience to work for you. 10 o'clock hour, we've got our friends from Sunburst Landscaping coming in and we'll be talking about the applications and care and living with artificial grass and what that means and uh, how popular it's becoming. But this morning, to start the show, We are making Rosie on the House broadcast history. We have never had an Olympic gold medalist in studio with us this morning, and ever, but we do have this morning Misty Hyman. Thank you so much for carving time out of your incredibly busy schedule. I'm to s- share your story.
2: I'm so excited to be here. And especially for my dad, Steve Hyman, he's been a fan of the show for a long time.
3: <laughs> well, I'm sure he's up with his cup of coffee uh, this morning. Absolutely. <laughs> Sitting on his patio. Oh.
1: Well, with uh, with six kids, each one of the kids had their one event, their one activity. Romy was a, primarily a wrestler. His older sister was in martial arts. His younger sister, Katie, was a swimmer. And we had Misty Hyman posters... All or, hanging all over the house, and when Jennifer said, "Look, I think we might be able to call her, and talk to her," and so Jennifer called and uh, arranged this conversation. And we—I I am awestruck that you're even in the same studio with me. This awesome. is awesome.
2: Thank you very much. I'm honored to be here.
1: Gosh, Misty Hyman, how did you get started in swimming?
2: Well. As many Arizonans do, I grew up up with a pool in my backyard, and my mom will tell you she had my brother and I in the pool from when we were babies, months old, and uh, we always just loved to be in the backyard swimming. But uh, when I was five years old, I was diagnosed with asthma, and I was allergic to a lot of things. I would get sick very often. Mm. And the doctor recommended swimming as the best sport for kids with asthma, as great therapy Mm. and so the first thing my mom did that summer was sign me up for the Parks and Rec Summer Swim League at Roadrunner Park that was just down the street from our house.
1: Yes, yeah. All right. all right. Yeah, that's the that was the one thing is that you were so you were almost like a neighbor. You competed at the neighboring high school that that all our kids went to and it was like, gosh, we almost almost knew you, you know? And it was just it was just great watching your career. So you start swimming at five. Who's the first person? that kind of got an inkling of what your capacity was? At what point does somebody finally figure out, I think we've got a gold medalist here?
2: Well, I think the gold medal is, you know, the icing on the cake. Oh. I think we, uh, you know, that's such a, a long shot. It's The chances are less than winning the lottery. So I'm not sure that anyone said that when I was young. But, <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, I remember... Uh, at the Arizona Sports Ranch, where I started swimming year-round, uh, my coach ha- Bob Gillett, he had built this facility at Union Hills and 38th Street. Is that a Fox? Is that what? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so he um, and his wife Kathy uh, worked with the younger kids. So I remember being in her group first. And I remember one day she called, um, she called Coach, as we call him, uh, Bob Gill. She called Coach over and said, yeah, I just want you to watch this, this little one's butterfly. <laughs> and I remember him coming over, and I remember um, some of the older kids on the swim team coming over to watch me do butterflies. So, um, you know, I remember being really proud that I could do it so well, but I didn't know that anything was different. But I remember that, you know, people were starting to notice that, wow, she, she can do the butterfly pretty well. <laughs> and I must have been probably seven or eight at that time.
1: Okay. And you took it for medicinal reasons. You picked it up for medicinal reasons, but you had to kind of fall in love with it at some point because speaking completely selfishly, there's nothing more boring than swimming. Not, I love watching it and I love competing in it, but doing it, how many laps have you seen me swim in our pool? None. <laughs> I mean, I I, I I hike, I jog, uh, you get to see the trees, you get to visit with a neighbor, you get to pet their dog, uh, you get to see the birds. I mean, when you're swimming, you're just locked in this little tomb of water, you, you can't even listen to music while you're doing well, that. Well,
2: you can now. They have great, oh. uh, we call them Swim <laughs> P3 players, the waterproof uh, headset, so you can listen to music. Uh, so that helps a lot. And yeah, most people think swimming is just swimming back and forth, staring at the black line. And, uh, but... You know, from a very un- young age I fell in love with it I loved the way that I felt like I could fly like I was weightless in the water mm. and the way I could move was so different than being on land it was so liberating that uh, and I loved the way the water felt when it rushed past my ears the way it sounded and the way it felt on my skin and so I think there was just something about being in the water that I had an affinity for
1: Wow now it was so you re- the coach recognized early butterfly Was your stroke? Did you? But you also backstroke, right?
2: Backstroke was my other race at the high school and collegiate level. Yes, Uh, and so uh, I definitely trained all the strokes, and uh, kind of felt like backstroke was my fun race. Butterfly was the one that had more pressure on it, more expectations, higher goals, that sort of thing. But um, yes, I think for uh, for my coach, he. Even though we trained all the strokes and I knew that I would race most of them, uh, Butterfly was something that we put a lot of extra special care into. It
3: isn't, and isn't, technically, isn't Butterfly the hardest? I mean, it's the most... That's what
2: a lot of people say. I would... It takes, uh, I think your heart rate is naturally higher in butterfly than the other strokes. Uh, just if you're even easy butterfly takes more effort than swimming easy in the other strokes. But I think racing them, it's debatable which stroke is the hardest. Okay. I would say a 200 backstroke to me is harder than a 200 butterfly uh, on your legs because you have to kick so hard. Uh, I, I st- always have struggled with breaststroke. So uh, I don't know that I've ever done a 200 breaststroke in a race in my life. So I would, my hat's off to all the breaststrokers out there. <laughs>
1: And it's just a, a a stroke you don't like.
2: I I just uh, it was a lot harder for me. Uh, the way you move your feet and your hips uh, was uh, didn't come very naturally to me because it's opposite of what you do in the butterfly, and so it was that one was was a challenge. <laughs>
1: And at at A Fox, I mean, you started there at Parks and Rec at five, and then over to A Fox shortly thereafter. I mm-hmm. mean, you're swimming competitively at six, seven, eight years old.
2: Yes, pretty early on. Uh, I love I love to race, and uh, I just remember it being such a fun family activity to go to the swim meets and to be with our team and to make up cheers and uh, yeah. yeah, I kind of grew up. It became our lifestyle. It Became normal, so <laughs> as it, you know. Did you outgrow the asthma then? Well, I was always treating it, and now, thanks to swimming, I feel like my lungs are still so strong and so healthy that um, really just a a very little bit of management, and I I have a... really doesn't interfere with my life in any way. Um, as I was training and especially growing up when I was younger, my asthma was a lot worse. So mm. I did have to, um, always be under the supervision of a doctor. I would, um, I took medication regularly and, uh, and also the biggest challenge for me was that when I got sick, uh, if it went to my lungs, then it was a oh. real challenge for me. And so, uh, and especially training as hard as I was, I was kind of always on the edge of that. And so because of my tendencies, I I would get sick at least once a year, usually a pretty serious illness, and uh, and then we had to really take good care of it.
1: Oh man, and 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 once it starts, like just with a little sinus drip, then it backs because I fight the same thing. Then it okay. fights back in the sinus infection, then it drops down the throat, and then it just your bronchitis or your <laughs> pneumonia
2: or whatever it ends up, and then uh, yeah, then it's <laughs> and and of course you know there's also the challenge of making sure. You know, we always had to be careful of the medications that I could take, uh, especially when I was uh, competing at a higher mm-hmm. level. So um, we had to work really closely with my doctor when I got sick to make sure that all the medications that I were, was taking were approved um, by, um, you know, the, uh, it's now a different agency, but the, uh, the Olympic agencies that oversee that.
1: So you're swimming at AFOX and you're going through grade school, middle school, and then you're in high school. And you're on the high school swim team.
2: Mm-hmm, yep, uh, I swam for Shadow Mountain High School. Actually. The
1: Matadors. Matadors I actually know.
2: visited the Matador swim team last night. Did you really? <laughs> I did.
1: Oh, that's cool. I bet they were tickled to death.
2: <laughs> oh, I I had so much fun. They're doing we're doing the same cheers and the same traditions, <laughs> and that's what I love about it.
1: Okay, so Matadors four years, and then where did you swim collegiately? At Stanford. Okay, a school known for its swimming program.
2: Yes. Among other things. <laughs> yeah, right, right.
1: And so what did you study?
2: I studied international relations with a focus on poli-sci history in Latin America.
1: Wow. Okay. Finished at Stanford. Yep. And were you done with college and then went to the Olympics?
2: No, I actually went to the Olympics uh, the summer between my junior and senior year.
3: So it actually extended your college a little bit, right? A little bit, yeah. which
2: was actually turned out to be a good thing because I uh, was able to study abroad my fifth year.
1: Well, I want to talk about all the places that swimming has taken you around the world because you've you've literally seen the globe. A lot of it. With with swimming. Yes. That's absolutely incredible. We're here visiting this morning with Olympic gold medalist Misty Hyman, locally grown, raised, trained, and lives right here in the Valley of the Sun. Uh, she's been an uh, icon at the Romero House Uh Since her swimming days, and we've always had posters of Misty hanging around the house, so... Misty Hyman.
0: Misty Hyman suddenly has slipped away. O'Neill trying valiantly. Hyman's in front by about a body length. Susie's got a big job on her hands. Thomas is back third. The Australians looking at silver and bronze. Will can O'Neill find something? This has been a great swim by the American. Hyman is still in front. O'Neill is second, Thomas is third. Misty Hyman is going to win gold for the American. Misty Hyman cannot believe it. Cruise it through the Arizona Hour with Sanderson for it and Rosie on the house. Misty Hyman suddenly has slipped away. O'Neill trying valiantly. Hyman's in front by about a body length. Susie's got a big job on her hands. Thomas is back third. The Australian's looking at silver and bronze. Will Ken O'Neill find something? This has been a great swim by the American. Hyman is still in front. O'Neill is second. Thomas is third. Misty Hyman is going to win gold for the American. Misty Hyman cannot believe it.
1: Oh. man!
3: How can what? you not tear up when you're listening to that? Song?
1: I didn't know you were going to be able to talk.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer's got tears running down her cheeks.
1: <laughs> so what race was that officially? Was that a Butterfly 100-yard? Two, 200 200-meter. 200 200, 200 okay. yep. In Sydney, I forget. the was meters. Yeah. In 2000. Uh, and, and, you know, Missy has also won 13 U.S. and five NCAA national titles. Now, what I want to talk about now, so we've talked about your early swimming. We talked about A Fox and uh, Shadow Mountain and Stanford. When and who, because you were known for thinking out of the box, you brought a whole new level of innovation to a stroke that had basically been swum the same way since its inception for and, and but that you know who invented the butterfly stroke? That, you know that's <laughs> well.
2: A, <laughs> the butterfly came along very late, believe it or not. There were three strokes for a long time, yeah. and the butterfly actually grew out of breaststroke. And uh, so people were trying to find faster ways to do the breaststroke, and then they started bringing their hands over, and then they, uh, and so finally it morphed into a new stroke. So butterfly is actually the youngest stroke, believe it or not.
1: Well, I bet it is. A, a masochist invented it. I know that. <laughs> so. You invented a new way to do it. Can we talk about that for a little while?
2: We can. I was among a handful of people that were uh, pioneering the way of swimming underwater for butterfly and freestyle. Uh, there were other great backstrokers that had actually kind of started this trend uh, in the backstroke and really taken it to the next level. But a lot of people didn't uh, feel like it could apply to butterfly and freestyle. So, And... The most important thing is that it wasn't really me the brains behind the whole operation was my coach uh, Bob Gillett. He was really the my late coach uh one of the most important people in my life. He was really the pioneer in in the sport of swimming, using math and science to really look for new ways we could get better. And one of his big themes was if you want to get better, you have to change something. And so he used math and science to look at swimming uh, very strategically and decide what are we going to change in order to get faster. And so really he was the one that guided me into Really exploring the underwater dolphin kick in the butterfly, and uh, and and use it to get to the world class level.
1: What about it makes it faster? Is it because all your energy is in the water instead of some of it being wasted? in the air?
2: Exactly. So uh, some of it is you're carrying the speed from pushing off the wall longer because that's the fastest moment in any swim is when you dive off the blocks or you push off the wall because you have something to actually push off against. Uh, And so you want to carry that speed as long as possible. And if you're underwater in a streamlined position, you have less resistance than you do on the surface when you're moving your arms. And so that's part of it. Uh, One of the things that uh, that Coach uh, Bob Gillett and I discovered was that I could actually get the same distance doing two kicks underwater as I could doing one stroke on the surface. And one stroke on the surface would take me 1.1 seconds, and two kicks underwater would take me 0.9. And so every time I traded off doing two kicks underwater instead of one stroke on the surface, I was able to save two-tenths of a second And we found that, of course, very advantageous. And Now, how
1: old are you at this point?
2: I was about 13 when we first started to play with the underwater kick. Uh, I was at the junior national level at the time, and I had some very big goals, and I needed to find some new ways to get faster. And so uh, part of it came along as some of the best things do by accident. (laughs) We were... um, kind of experimenting with different ways to go faster. And we we kind of stumbled upon the fact that I was very good underwater in a streamlined position. And then when we started timing it, we realized it was something we should really pursue and take to the next level. And so when we figured out the math of it, it made sense to train to stay underwater longer than was traditionally considered fast.
1: Well, then how do you go from the normal position of the dolphin kick— To decide, I'm going to do it sideways.
2: Yes. How do you do that? Right. So this happened a few years later, uh, and I remember it very distinctly because uh, we were at the Arizona Sports Ranch, which uh, it was, of course, the the pool was in my coach's backyard, (laughs) actually. So he had built this uh, facility where we trained, and in the winter, uh, the small pool, we had a four-lane, 25-yard pool that we swam in in the winter, and we had a plastic dome bubble over the top of it, which kind of be foggy in the morning, and has a zipper for the entrance, and which was great because it's pretty cold in the mornings mm-hmm. in the winter if you have to jump in a pool. So, uh, so we we called it the bubble. And so I remember uh, it was holiday training in uh, 1995, and coach came in and unzipped the zipper, came in through the through the fog, and he said, "Today, when you do your underwater kicks, I want you to try them on your side." And he was the type of guy that always had amazing ideas. He, some, some worked and some didn't. And I was used to being his guinea pig. So I said, OK. I shrugged my shoulder, said, OK, I'll give it a shot. And so I got in. And at this point, I'd been training the underwater kick for several years. And when I first tried my underwater kicks on my side, I actually ended up three lanes over because I didn't know oh, how I to bet. steer <laughs> on my side. <laughs> I didn't know what to look at. <laughs> Once I figured out that I could look out of the corner of my eye at the line on the bottom and I could go straight, it felt faster. And then when, when Coach timed me, it, they were all my repeats were a few tenths faster.
1: Misty Hyman, gold medalist Misty Hyman, visiting with us and with you here at Rosie on the House. More with Misty when we get back.
0: The tank is full, and we're moving through the Arizona hour with Sanderson Ford and Rosie on the House. And
1: we're just tickled to death this morning to be making Rosie on the House broadcast history by having our first Olympic gold medalist in studio with us this morning. She was an icon at the Romero House all through the 90s and 2000 when she won her gold medal in Sydney, Australia, Misty Hyman. We had swimmers, the kids were swimmers, and Misty was... I mean, Katie even showed up this morning just to beat Misty. So, yeah. <laughs> Misty, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. So we were talking about your innovation, your team's innovation, your coach's innovation. You know, and I knew your coach, but only because we swam against him. You know, I, what what was what's his story? Where did where did he come from?
2: Right. Well, he was from Arizona as well. And he had always had a dream. He coached at uh, many of the local country clubs and the pools in town. And he uh, had always had a dream of starting his own training facility. And so he bought 10 acres in the desert at Union Hills and 38th street. And I remember when my mom was looking for a year round program uh, to start me in, she literally opened the phone book, the yellow pages and looked for the closest year round program to our house. Wow. And it happened to be the Arizona Sports Ranch. And at the time, there was a dirt road uh, to get there. It was and a funky place. It, it was. It <laughs> yes, was. kind of tucked away and in the desert. And uh, and my coach had built his home there. And in his backyard, he had uh, a four-lane, 25-yard pool. Uh, by the time I was nine years old, uh, we had put in—I say we because it was kind of like a family. Uh, he had put in a eight-lane, fifty-meter pool, an Olympic-sized pool, in the yard as well. And then there were uh, beach volleyball courts, tennis courts, and a multi-purpose room. And eventually, there were dorms for swim camps in the summertime. Kids wow. from all over the
3: world would come and do week-long swim camps. What was a payoff a p- for for him to end up with you in his, you know, in, in his sights and be able to work with you. I wanted to go back to um, just kind of what happened. Once y'all came up with these innovations with the dolphin kick and staying underwater, tell us what the controversy was in that. Sure. Well, I uh,
2: I think we were just about to talk about the side kicking part, yes. and uh, that came about when I got out of the pool. Uh, I said, Coach, it felt faster on my side. Why? Why is that? And he pulled out an article from Scientific American magazine, and it was written by scientists from MIT, and a, a, another coach had given him this article. And the article described the way that fish swim underwater because these scientists were trying to apply what they were learning from fish to our military because fish swim so much more efficiently than anything humans have ever built. Okay. And so the article described uh, that as a fish flips its tail in one direction, it creates a whirlpool in the water that spins one way, and as a fish flips its tail the other direction, it creates another whirlpool that spins the opposite way. Okay. And when those two hit together, that's what makes the fish go forward.
1: Okay. Wow. And
2: a lot of that has to do with the change in pressure, actually, in the water, uh, very much the same way an airplane flies. Uh, but essentially, my coach started to think, well, isn't that what happens when Misty's doing butterfly under the water? She's spinning. These vortices are created in the water, and that's what makes, makes her move. But he thought, well, depending on the size of these, these whirlpools, uh, if you're on your front swimming butterfly kick underwater, those could hit the bottom of the pool or the surface. Sure. And so we actually did an experiment to find out how big they were. Uh, We went to the pool on a weekend day and we rubber banded a plastic tube from my fingertips all the way to my feet. And we put dye from the grocery store, food coloring, (laughs) in the tube. And I held it like a straw to keep the dye in there. Uh, I got in the pool and my coach stood on a diving board with a video camera, pushed off underwater, let my thumb off the top of the tube so the dye would come out by my feet and kicked dolphin kick on my side, and uh, we have film of these whirlpools, the vortices, getting to be almost four feet in diameter. Wow. And so the, the theory was that by kicking on my side, then those whirlpools would have be uninterrupted by the bottom and the surface, mm-hmm. as long as I wasn't in an end lane. <laughs> so a bigger driver for you. Yeah, okay. so you get more power from each kick.
1: All right. Well, we would not be doing our listeners justice. If if we high centered and spent the entire hour talking about your Olympic accomplishment. You won the gold medal in Sydney, Australia, in two thousand in two oh five eight eight. Right. So what happens if you swim two oh six?
3: I'm probably not sitting here talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the hardest part as a swimmer parent is trying to Reconcile or console your child who's lost by a hundredth of a second. No,
1: no. The hardest part about being a parent of a swimmer is sitting four and a half hours on the deck in the middle of the summer for a two for a two minute race.
2: Right, exactly. (laughs) For three days in a row. Yeah, that's right.
1: That was the hardest part. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about that event just real quick. You beat someone who hadn't been beat in this event in six. They were undefeated. For six years and she was swimming in her home country she had home court advantage she hadn't been beat in six years what what were the broadcasters the sports broadcasters what 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 was everybody thinking you would do we we were thinking like a we were hoping a bronze, weren't we?
2: Exactly. Everybody said an outside chance for a bronze medal. Of course, just to make the Olympic team is a dream come true. Oh, oh. I mean, I had just missed it in 96 by three one-hundredths of a second. Oh. So so oh. just being on the team and getting to be there was incredible. It was like a fairy tale. I'd wake up every morning, and I'd look around. And I'm like, am I really here? Is this really oh, happening? Bet. And I'd peek out the window, and I could see the Olympic flame from my bed mm-hmm. in my dorm. Ah. And I would get the chills all over again. I think, yes, I this is really happening. <laughs> and uh, But, of course, if you're at the Olympics and you have a chance, you want to go for the gold. And my coaches and I had talked about what it would take to beat Susie mm. O'Neill. Uh, my Stanford coach, uh, the late Richard Quick, and, and of course, my Arizona coach, Bob Gillett. We had talked about exactly how I could swim a race, that I had the potential to beat her if I put together the race of my life.
1: Wow. And you did. I did. <laughs> All right. So So now... Uh, I have a relative who also competed in the Olympics in Berlin in 36. He lived, and he's deceased, but his whole life was about that moment. He never got over it. What's so impressive about you is you've gone through this incredible evolution. I don't know what to call it, but you're not living in that 20588.
2: No, it's still a big part of my life. Oh, I bet. And and I think that's the hard part with something like that is that, you know, for a little, you know, at first the 15 minutes were great. They were very overwhelming at the beginning. And then I was over it and I didn't want to talk about it anymore. But every day, every, somebody would ask <laughs> about those two minutes and five seconds. Yes. So there was about several years where I didn't go one day without talking about it. And, uh, you know, what's nice is I feel like at, at this point in my life, um, Yeah, I think there was a time when I thought I need to step away from that. And I went and did some traveling and had some other experiences where I got away from it and kind of felt like I closed that chapter. And what has been wonderful is to know that I could go off and do these other things that had nothing to do with swimming and then come back and integrate who I was with who I am now and have those. I can still be the person who won the gold medal, but I can also be all the things that I am now. A mom, a professional, a business owner, uh, a coach. And, uh, you know, but that's not an easy transition to make for anybody.
1: No, it's not.
3: So you do a lot of motivational speaking and you called it a platform of the privilege of the platform. The privilege of the platform. So using all those things that you learned to encourage the next generation and and beyond, right? Yes, yes. That was uh,
2: something my speaking coach, Naomi Rode, uh taught me was that uh, because, you know, who, who do I think I am to stand up there behind a podium and, and talk about my life? And she taught me that it's a privilege to have, to have a platform that I do from winning the gold medal and to be able to share it in a way that has a positive effect on others.
1: Well, your energy is just a positive effect on others. <laughs> Thank so, you. So, when did you launch this next career? Because uh, you have you have a degree in international studies,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then a and then a, a a second degree.
2: I have an MBA in hotel management and finance. Okay, and uh, yeah. So um, one of the things that really maybe inspired me about my swimming experience was the idea of human potential and uh, what we're capable of. I mean, that's really the the key thing that swimming taught me was that I was capable of so much more than I could have ever dreamed. And through that process, I learned how to reach peak performance, not just in terms of my physical body, but also mentally and and in other areas of my life. And I felt like that was something that everyone can apply to just being the best human being you can be in any endeavor that you do. And so for me, I felt like, very much like the Arizona Sports Ranch was for me, you know, one of my dreams has been to be able to create a space where people can pursue the idea of human potential. And so uh, part of that, you know, in running a business like that seemed to come from the hospitality area, from resorts. And I think growing up in this area, resorts are such a big part of our, uh, our economy. And uh, so I decided to pursue my MBA in hotel management and finance. And so that took me to Switzerland,
1: actually. Wow. And you were there how long?
2: Uh, A year.
1: Okay. And so now, today, uh, you you can find Misty at mistyhyman.com. You can... Can you take a swimming lesson from Misty Hyman? You can. Can you
2: really? At the Sanctuary Resort in Paradise Valley. And actually, Fodor's just ranked uh, my lessons at the Sanctuary as one of the top 15 most exclusive hotel experiences in the world. <laughs> so
1: Congratulations. That's awesome.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Well, it's an absolutely beautiful setting. That's for sure. It's hard to beat the Sanctuary. I couldn't
2: ask for a better office.
1: <laughs> that's fantastic. And so... How would some, would they book that through your website?
2: They can uh, reach me through the website or they can call the sanctuary directly.
1: Okay. And then how about you, your motivational speaking? You're doing this uh, in corporate environments as well.
2: Yes, yes. Corporations, uh, universities, nonprofits, schools. Uh, I customize my speech for the audience and for the purpose of the event. And so uh, I talk about innovation and the math and science and overcoming adversity and, you uh, Share my Olympic
1: story, and you're living now right here in the valley, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I have one question that just is totally off track.
3: She looks nervous.
1: Have you <laughs> Have you ever talked with the girl you beat?
3: We did
2: have lunch in the village after our race. You did? Yes. Just, just the two of you. Just the two of us. We had uh, we had lunch in the village. And uh, Susie and I had raced uh, quite a few times prior to that. And so we knew each other. And she was always gracious in, in victory and was gracious in defeat. And I'd always looked up to her and it was great to be able to have lunch with her. And we talked about she was retiring after that. And so, you know, we talked about what she was going to do next. And uh, she she had a swimsuit line coming out in uh, at Target in Australia and because swimming is a really big sport in Australia. And so, uh, yeah, she was she was wonderful. So I think one of the coolest things about uh, my experience in Australia was that even though I had beat their superstar Everybody was genuinely happy for me because they knew that it was a breakthrough performance uh, for me. So uh, I felt uh, very lucky to to get that kind of uh, response. Wow. All
1: right. Misty Hyman, swimming innovator, swimming gold medalist, swimming U.S. national titles 13 times? Yes. Five NCAA national titles? That's awesome. Thank you. You can reach Misty at mistyhyman.com for speaking to your company, your corporation, your nonprofit, uh, or you can sign up for swimming lessons at Sanctuary. How long are those lessons?
2: Uh, They can be a half an hour or an hour. And uh, really, I work with all levels, so... um, I've helped some swimmers that have uh, had maybe a traumatic experience with swimming and want to get back to it, uh, overcome their fears, and learn to swim for fitness. Uh, I work with triathletes. I work with um, people that just want to swim because they can't hike or do other things that they used to do to stay active. So really all levels of swimmers.
1: Well, we've had a lot of guests on the show, but I have to tell you, uh, with you in studio, I'm starstruck. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your hectic, hectic, busy, busy schedule and visiting with all of us here at Rosie on the House. Thanks, Amelia.
2: Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you both.
1: At Rosie on the House, we want you to get out and enjoy the great state of Arizona. That's why we bring you the Arizona Staycations. Pick up your car at Sanderson Ford, we'll set you up and your accommodations. Plus, Sibley's West, Arizona Gift Shop, Serena's Candy, Coyote Ode Cookies, Sphinx Date Ranch, Cactus Candy, and Arizona Highways always provide some swag for your trip. Win your Arizona staycation. Register now only at rosieonthehouse.com. And you can register to win every single month. We draw winners on the 15th of the month, and then we empty the basket of names, and we start filling it up again, and then we draw on the next fifteenth of the month.
3: If they put in this week, they'll get a chance to win a trip to Jerome and stay at the Jerome Grand Hotel. Okay, that'd be a fun one. That and that actually takes place October twenty-first and twenty-second. But you have till September fifteenth to to put into the drawing.
1: And I think the current winners are actually up at La Posada, right in Winslow.
3: Yeah, isn't that fun? The La
1: Posada. I think La Posada means the resting place.
3: It is that, and it doesn't have a lot to do. Close right there in the town of Winslow, there's just like one main drag, but it's nice. You just kind of hang out, and the gardens on site are really beautiful, and there's all kinds of artwork, and it's just. And the restaurant is five star quality. It's the turquoise amazing. Room.
1: Yeah, it is spectacular. It is uh, an original train station. Uh, It was designed by Mary Elizabeth Jane Coulter. Uh, It was a part of the Harvey Mm -hmm. chain of Mm -hmm. hotels. Uh, It's a beautiful building. It was owned by the railroad. It was being prepared for demolition when someone with a vision came in and bought it and remodeled it and opened it up and the rooms are named after famous guests that have stayed there in the past.
3: Very historic feel. It must have been quite the oasis to get off of a train in a dusty desert to linens and wonderful food and these in this wonderful accommodation.
1: Built in the 20s. How would you like to how would you like to spend 1 million dollars building a motel and open it in 1929? What else happened in 1929? <laughs> that Great Depression. Just finished building. It was one million dollars in 1929 dollars. Right. That's about 1.3 billion. Wow! Today, I mean, the hand craftsmanship that is in that building is really. Truly incredible, and much of a, when they did the remodel, it was really just refurbishing a lot of the master craftsmanship that was already there. They didn't have to recreate much; they just had to kind of refurbish what was there. So, if you, it's go, a,
3: if you go and stay, you can sit on the rocking chairs and watch the trains come and go. You can eat a great meal, relax in the garden,
1: cross the fence. Do
3: not cross the fence; that means you. <laughs> No trespassing actually means Rosie Romero as well.
1: I didn't see the sign. Oh please, but there I will I will tell you if you're curious about trains and you're sitting there watching the trains and you want to get a closer look at them, do not cross the fence.
3: <laughs> but there are other things. I to thought do I was going to get put in jail. Yeah, I did too. That gal was pretty serious. Yeah, she you was and pretty Tom serious. Tom Riley, man, I'd stay off the tracks too. Please. Stay off yeah. the
1: tracks. Yeah. But an absolute fabulous, lovely place to stay. And you mentioned there isn't a lot to do in Winslow.
3: You can stand uh, on the corner there and get your picture. you know, With standing. the bronze statue. Mm-hmm, which uh, is pretty cool. Right there.
1: Uh, but there's a lot to do in the neighborhood. Yes,
3: yes. Lots of good. If you love seeing Indian ruins, there's Hamalavi is close by.
1: And that is a great park. It's one of the newer parks. And it is a, it's a dwelling that housed thousands all along the little colorado river uh and they migrated from second mesa and i tell you what i think in that part of the country if if you're there and you don't take the drive up to and arabe is the oldest continuously inhabited community in north america and it's right here in arizona and And also
3: if it has a closed sign you should stay out as well
1: And it's right there on the (laughs) edge of a cliff, and the housing actually just goes right... uh, Look it up. Uh, uh, Google it. Oribe, Arizona. Second Mesa, Arizona. It is available. You have to make arrangements to get tours uh, by the the Native Americans that live there. You can't just go, but they will arrange to give you a tour. It's worth it. Go do it. It's absolutely beautiful. So Second Mesa, Oribe, Homology. The
3: meteor, uh, meteor crater, crater right crater. close by is really pretty um, impressive as well.
1: Okay, so that's our current guests are at La Posada in Winslow. It's a beautiful drive, and I'll tell you one thing to get there, go leave the highway at Christopher Creek and go up over on top of the rim and take that drive all the way across Jim O'Hawkins Ranch. That is the prettiest way. To get to Winslow. Don't go to Flagstaff and take 40 across. There's Too many other prettier areas all along that Chevron, Mason, all that area. So get to RoseOnTheHouse.com. It's the only place in the world you can register to win an Arizona staycation. We'll be drawing September 15th for
3: Jerome. Jerome Jerome Grand Hotel.
1: Okay, Jerome's a lot of fun. A lot of fun things to do in, about, and around Jerome for sure. All right, so there it is, com. We've got John Eisenhower coming in here the next hour. We'll be talking everything trees in particular. I think they're going to be talking about the pomegranate tree.